Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Producer Jonah here, and a very warm welcome back to Principle of Charity. Season 2 has arrived, and we've got a truly incredible lineup of guests taking on some of the biggest social topics of the present day. You can subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date, and we'll also keep you posted across all good social media platforms, where we encourage you to join the discussion and lend your insights, feelings, and thoughts on the issues and the episodes. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Emil Sherman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy Lloyd Vogelman. We've had a great first season of six episodes with a really phenomenal response to the podcast. So now this is a special episode, one that sits outside our normal format. In fact, it sits above our normal episodes, a sort of meta app where we shine a light on the principle of charity itself. Well, we know that principle of charity is about how we approach conversations, right? And so in this episode, we look at what it actually is and why it's so important. We also go one layer deeper and ask whether there are any limits to the principle of charity itself, when it might be problematic or unhelpful to use it. And to do all of this, we have the fabulous Tim Minchin with us. Now, Tim is an Australian musician, uh, comedian, composer, actor, writer, and director. He's best known for his extraordinarily clever and memorable songs, including those on his latest album, Apart Together, as well as his work as composer and lyricist on two West End Broadway hit musicals, Matilda and Groundhog Day, both of which won the Olivia Award for Best West End Musical and Garnered Tony Award nominations. He's written, produced, and starred in the TV series Upright, and acted on the stage and screen and is a member of the Order of Australia. But more important than all of that, he came up with the name of this podcast, didn't he, Lloyd? That's right, Emil. We had the format worked out. We knew we wanted to bring together two expert guests with opposing views on big social issues and to frame up a conversation that emphasised both curiosity and generosity rather than just sound bites and debate. We also knew we wanted each guest at some point in the discussion to present the strongest version of the other viewpoint, as opposed to creating a straw version of the other's argument just so that you can tear it down and celebrate a hollow victory and make yourself feel smarter. We just couldn't work out what to call the podcast. And as I understand it, Emil and Tim, uh, you had a, what I would now say, a pre-lockdown coffee. And Tim suggests that, in fact, I think uh, Emil sort of instructed that we call it a principle of charity. Tim, like us, has long been obsessed with science and reason. Uh, He created the wonderful poem book and animation Storm that brilliantly dramatizes the philosophy of science. I recommend it highly. He's also a big advocate for the need to have more respectful conversations where we assume the best of each other and really listen before jumping to righteous disagreement and our own sense of moral superiority. Now, the principle of charity itself, as I, uh, as I know, or as I, as I understand, was established sort of in the late 1950s, coined by Neil Wilson, 
And I've used, uh, I came across it also through the reading of Daniel Dennett, uh, and I use it in my work as a consultant. But without Tim, we wouldn't have arrived at the name for this podcast. So thank you, Tim, and welcome to you. Welcome, Tim. Yeah, no worries. I'm proud. (laughs) (laughs) And luckily, having uh, suggested that you use the philosophical uh, concept as your name, you went on to make a good podcast. If it had been crap, I would have been embarrassed to be associated with it and I would have distanced myself. Very <laughs> risky. These things are risky. Very risky, yeah. Before we start, I'm just going to give everyone a quick sense of the format for this special episode. So I'm going to moderate the first section where we dig into exactly what Principle of Charity is and why it's important and what, if any, are its limitations. And I'll be asking Tim and Lloyd for their views. Lloyd will then lead the final section asking Tim and myself some more personal questions, probing how we bring intellectual charity into our own lives or not. So I guess just before we start, I should, you know, given Lloyd is jumping to the other side here as interviewee, I should uh, quickly introduce his background because Lloyd has a quite a unique history. He now runs the Cortex Company, a global boutique consultancy where he works with CEOs and senior executives of some of the world's largest companies in Australia and globally. But prior to that, Um, Lloyd qualified as a clinical psychologist and did a PhD focusing on the dynamics of group extremism. And he's been a visiting scholar at Harvard and other universities. And before that, in South Africa, he was a leader in the fight against apartheid as a member of the UDF, which was a non-racial front of approximately 600 anti-apartheid organizations banned by the apartheid government at the time. He was also the founder of the Centre for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, one of the largest trauma centres for victims of apartheid violence. So so Lloyd has deep expertise both personally and professionally in extremism, in, in political activism and in business culture, all of which turns on the question of how we communicate with people with different opinions. So let's get this show on the road. Tim. Talk us through what what actually is the principle of charity as you understand it. Well, I think the principle of charity is basically a sort of has its origins in the Bible or pre-Bible in in that you should do unto unto others what you would have done unto you. And the principle, principle of charity basically says argue unto others how you would like to be argued. And we we don't do that naturally because our desire is to be right and we often have huge investments in our opinions as we should because, you know, not just because of our egos but because of what we're passionate about in the world and the changes we want to see. But it makes us make huge errors and it makes us assume the people that we are arguing with, we attribute to them illogic, uh, ill intent, often evil and ignorance, and we do this thing all the time, which is called in philosophy the fundamental attribution error, which is an error we make where we attribute to others their their uh, mistakes we say are their, are fundamental to them. You know, this person's done the wrong thing or said the wrong thing. That's because they are fundamentally bad, whereas when we do or say the wrong thing, we attribute it to a misstep or an error, but it's an exception to the rule. We're fundamentally good and correct. So we do this to other people all the time. We basically assume they're bad and dumb and are in bad faith. And, of course, sometimes that might be the case, and I think we'll get to that, the times in which, you know, having a good debate is useless because the other person's not on board with the principle of charity and has other motives. But I think 
it is less common than we think. Well, I think that's the point, isn't it, Tim, that some people are acting in bad faith or talking in bad faith, but you sort of won't know if you assume malintent um, from the get-go. Let's, you know, let's sort of, because the principle of charity works at a number of levels. At a very basic level, it asks us to just assume the most rational and sensical version of what other people say. I mean, you know, it is so hard just to communicate. Um, Even at the best of times, you think of what lawyers do uh, trying to really foolproof language so that every possible misinterpretation is dealt with. I mean, even on a basic level, Tim, it's difficult to understand what people really intend. You know, you think of emails, you think of all the different ways we communicate. It's hard. I think it's hard, but I think we pretend it's harder than it is. Mm. Yes, it is harder the less uh, nuanced your form of communication is. So when we're talking like this, you, you, you two chaps, Emil and Lloyd and I can all see each other. Um, unfortunately, we're not around a coffee table, but we can see each other and we're talking in language. And with language, when we're having a conversation, I can start saying something and then correct myself. I can use my face to show that I'm, my eyebrows are up and I'm listening and I'm keen to hear you. And this is a brilliant, evolved, subtle way of discussing things. Mm. You take that to the written word and it's very didactic and sort of prescriptive and and, and um, lacks some of the nuance of facial expressions and especially verbal tone. And then you take that to a form of right, written word which uh, for which expediency is most valuable, like the email chain, and it gets less subtle and easier to misinterpret. And then you take it to Twitter and... <laughs> And everything's mm, gone mm, to pot mm. because it is much more easy to misinterpret someone's intent in that format. You know, Lloyd, just to come to you for a second, we're talking about the purpose of principle of charity, the purpose of conversations as getting to the truth, you know, maybe even changing our own minds, which we'll get to. But even if we just want to change someone else's viewpoint, the principle of charity yeah. can be helpful, can't it? A- absolutely. One of the things about influencing people which has become quite clear, both, both I think in the evidence around influence, is that in general, you don't influence by somebody by making yourself look smarter first. It's just, people just don't feel good when you come out and you feel smarter than them or they are made to feel less smart. The first step in good influence is to build a connection with somebody. And one of the ways you build a connection is by listening to them and making them feel valued. Yeah. That is that is absolutely the first step and I think the principle of charity in the way that it allows you to listen and then to value another builds the connection. Uh, particularly in competitive environments. Um you know South Africa during its political transition was highly highly uh, competitive. You had two different forces trying to establish a democracy or in some cases not wanting to establish a democracy. One of the geniuses of Mandela was his ability to connect with the enemy. He connected at a very, very personal level. He, you know, there are stories where he would invite people in and make them a cup of tea. I mean, uh, in, in, you know, after he had been uh, released. I mean, the ability to connect first is is absolutely fundamental. And how you connect yeah. is then not just through listening, but actually mirroring that other individual's argument so that you know that you've got it. You, you have to summarize their best points. And they know that you've got it and they feel safe. And then there's the possibility to influence them. I mean, but 
turning that upside down, Tim, and thinking about how we can change our own minds, can we actually, how likely is it that we end up changing our own minds by listening to smart, thoughtful people with different views if you enter into a conversation in good faith? Well, the odds on you changing your mind if you don't are close to zero. <laughs> sure. Um, so sure. I, I think Lloyd articulated it perfectly. You need to let other people know that you're listening and not just listening but have heard them. And you do that by, you know, pitching their their argument back to them in the best possible light. Otherwise, you're, you're already stumped, you know. And the, the trouble with all this is we don't like changing our minds or at least there is a, a resistance to changing one's mind because it feels like it's weak and it doesn't give you that big, strong, foundational moral pole that simplifies your life. But actually I think that's cultural and changeable. I find it very exciting, the idea of changing my mind. That's where I get my buzzers. And, and look, there's plenty of things I could talk about where I've been, you know, very publicly polemical and, and not generous to other people's points of views as part of my, you know, satire and stuff. But I'm on a journey. One of the things I'm continuing to learn about is how best to convince exactly what Lloyd's been talking about and and what the role of polemic is, which we'll get to later, uh, as in contrast to the role of listening and um, being charitable in your interpretation of other people. There's a lot of emphasis on how do we change other people's minds using active listening and making them feel safe to change their minds. But as we're saying now, there's sort of less emphasis on how do we change our own minds? Like, why would we think that our opinion is somehow has more validity than other people who are equally thoughtful mm. and smart? Yeah. I mean, I want to just talk for a second about intellectual humility and creating a culture which validates mind changing and where we realize that, look, no matter how certain we are of our own views. If you look back in history, you realize there were a lot of people certain of their views in the past and, uh, you know, their views have been proven to be wrong. And our one thing we know for certain is our views will be wrong at some point. And so to enter into conversations with an almost sort of epistemic or even like a, a sort of fundamental humility that we are more likely to be wrong than right and we need to come into conversations with uncertainty. But how do we stay open, Tim, to that possibility without being paralyzed by doubt and being unable to act? How do we find that balance? I have got a lot of solace from this very conversation in that the education I've given myself and partly at university about um, neuropsychological humility, about the ways in which our brains trick ourselves and the ways in which our psychological profiles trick ourselves. Gathering that knowledge gives you a different foundation. It's not a foundation of moral certainty, but a foundation um, like a grid that holds up the way in which you engage with arguments in the world. So I really, it's not just the principle of charity to me, it's that, that this is a fantastic place to start, but under mm. the principle of charity and maybe in more episodes we'll go wider in the sort of philosophical tools of argument and listening, but are all these biases that we have, both neurological mm. biases, the way our brain interprets information and, you know, just the vision we're getting through our eyes and our memories and the massive way in which our memories are flawed and how we centralize ourselves in our narratives and how all the different biases we have, this stuff 
gives me a sense of security because these are the ideas that have survived 2,000 plus years and you can always fall back into their arms and I, I like it and I'm, that's why I'm an advocate of this sort of conversation, I suppose. Lloyd, you wanted to uh, say something a second ago. You can't apply the principle of charity unless you understand how hard it is. To Tim's point a bit earlier, if we go back to evolution, our own biology, I mean, we are truly hardwired to be lazy. We are truly hardwired to conserve energy. <laughs> we didn't run around, you know, millions of years ago trying to do exercise. I mean, we were trying to conserve energy in order to survive. And when we found the fig tree, we would eat as much as we could. We don't want to change our minds because that requires an enormous amount of intellectual and emotional horsepower. We, we have to go back to that statement, I think, that Jonathan Haidt makes. Morality binds, it makes us feel tribal, it makes us feel good, and then it also blinds. It makes us be delusional about ourselves and about other people. You know, I, I was very much in the context of my life in the 1980s, South Africa and the left were very much part of being quite antagonistic towards the West because the West was seen as colluding with the apartheid government up until certainly 1985-86. And there was, a, there was an automatic affiliation to, to the Soviet Union and its, and its satellites. They were seen to be hmm. funding the ANC, uh, Mandela's party, and so inevitably there, there, was a, there was an appreciation of them. I still have a book that I will not throw out, and it's called Achievements of the Soviet Union, which I read. Now, I keep that to remind myself how delusional I was and also yeah. the importance of changing my mind. To have a good faith conversation, assuming the best version of the other's argument, it sort of implies that we, we trust them. Or if we don't trust them, we're giving them the gift of trust. You know, and that maybe is difficult in societies where trust is breaking down. I mean, at its core, how important is trust or is the principle of charity a way to bridge a, a deficit of trust? I think it's a really interesting point. And uh, I wrote down when I was just writing notes on my thoughts about this whole thing um, that the, applying the principle of charity is a, is a radically optimistic thing to do. And I am, I, I, I think we must be optimistic. I, I think the dearth of optimism and, and generosity and trust is self-actualizing. If, if we don't trust one, one another to be uh, acting in good faith and debating in good faith, then it just spirals and spirals and spirals and we'll yeah. get further and further apart and that's what's happening. So, yes, it's a leap of faith that the other person is on board in good faith and you just have to do it and you, you, you get burned and often you're the person who's not acting in good faith. You might be. One, sure. one tries not to be, but sometimes you just want to win. You want to burn the other person. You just want to feel powerful. You, always. One's always inclined to do that. Well, sometimes sometimes other people, you know, in the end are not deserving of good faith, but you, mm. you, you, you don't know unless you give the gift. I mean, that is the leap of faith. It's the leap, yeah. leap of religion in a sense. Yeah. It's the leap of grace. Anything where you are without being earned, giving something. And it is a really generous act to, to give somebody the benefit of, of, of good faith. 
and I guess you have to manage your expectations and manage sure. your feelings if you I, – I do it quite often because I – you know, I'm. I have a public profile on the internet, and sometimes I say things in public, and I get a lot of hateful responses. You know, people assuming the most ridiculous things about me. I'm trying to promote vaccines, and people are assuming I'm on the payroll of Big Pharma, as if they could afford me. The, you know, these are absurd accusations and absurd lack of charitable interpretation of my intent mm. and I try to go back to them and you know, politely and kindly and it you know it virtually never works but every now and then you have someone turn around and go you know what mate I totally that was completely unfair of me and you're right I was I was not seeing you as a person I mean the principle of charity is a humanizing salve mm. right in a world where Everything inclines us to dehumanize the other tribe, exactly what Lloyd said. It blinds us as well as binds us. Dehumanizing is the kind of tool of the day, you know, and, and the principle of charity is a humanizing leap of optimism. Yes. We're saying, yes. I want to hear this human because I don't think they're a baddie because I don't think that's how the world works. And it's a salve in itself. Even if nine out of ten times it doesn't work and even if you fail yourself sometimes, curiosity and humanising others is a salve. Use that to salve your anxiety, not not prescriptive radicalism. You know, There are forces that are acting against that. Lloyd's talked about some of the evolved forces within our nature and you've talked about some of the biases there's also the force of social media tim <laughs> how has how has social media made generous conversations more difficult well i think it's utterly corrupting and and it's hard to talk about because social media has uh, opened doors has democratized the conversation has given a voice to the voiceless has allowed for you know the arab spring has has allowed for um communication, uh, you know, that would otherwise have been blocked and all this stuff. But long-term we need to be very serious about the side effects of a marketplace of ideas which absolutely, unarguably, the data all shows it, it necessarily highlights outrage. You, you know, the, there's all these studies that have been done. The more sort of evocative and angry the language you use, the more clicks you get, the more endorphins you get. It is a system of radicalization yep. without a yep. doubt and it is poison. Well, it seems to both through the algorithms put us in more and more of our own epistemic bubbles, our bubbles of knowledge um, so we are less used to hearing other viewpoints. But then, Lloyd, you know, to Tim's point, it also um, seems to encourage and spread righteous anger, which is very powerful. Why, why is righteous anger such a powerful force? I mean, we are we are tribal. We like to be in groups. Yeah. We choose groups. Uh, we choose identities. And we, we, we need to acknowledge it. That is just who we are, right? Uh, wokeism in itself is tribal. Um, and so it makes people feel good. And so I think righteous anger gives us a sense of esteem. It gives us a sense of tribalism. Um, Tim, people are told today more than, you know, I think it's sort of quite a new thing in a sense that if you feel insulted or you're emotionally triggered, then that in itself is a sort of signal to stop the conversation. H how do we honour our feelings um, while still engaging in good, good faith conversation about things that may trigger discomfort? 
whilst you're thinking for a sec, I'm going to give you an example, a personal example, because it really is, it is difficult. You know, I mean, I'm Jewish and we've talked what? about this, Tim. That, yeah, sorry, sorry to, uh, yeah, I hope you still talk to me. Um, yeah. But when people talk about Israel, I even though I'm actually hugely critical of many things that Israel does, when I'm talking with people who are not Jewish, I find that my heart rate slightly increases, I start to feel a little defensive, and I get slightly triggered. I don't want to be, but I do. And I then face a dilemma. Do you? Do I try to avoid those conversations? Should I use it as an excuse to not engage in conversations that are triggering? Or do you really work at it and try to, um, as much as possible, acknowledge it, but then also contain it and say that it's more important to have conversations that deal with difficult or triggering emotions than it is to say the having the emotion is the reason not to have the conversation. Look, it's such a good example because you're a, you're a very empowered Australian Jewish man, sort of yeah. secular Jewish man, and yet you feel sort of psychically tired uh, and triggered by a conversation about Israel. And we this is where the conversation about privilege and power comes in, and it's a long conversation for another podcast, but I don't have an equivalent because I, I'm – I can't think of something that is equivalent to me. And I can think of a lot of people I know who have much, much more psychically draining, many more, you know, a, a, a disabled person with some able-bodied person sort of ghostly asking questions about disability or an Aboriginal person with someone, a white person having a strong opinion on on Aboriginality when they haven't really thought it through, that there's no doubt there's huge discrepancy in in how easy it is for a, any given individual to be generous when they hear an opposing view right there there is a difference however i still think the goal should be to minimize in your own life to the extent that you can the ways in which you um must dis the, the the places in which you must disengage. So we all, with our own limitations, our our own inherited trauma, we all need to be on the mission to not let everything be something that you you won't hear anything else about. You know, so you don't yeah. let that become your way of being, if possible. Yeah, you know, and some people yeah. it will be their way of being, being like fuck you and defensive justifiably is their way of being, but that's not everyone. I mean, one almost has to take a sort of a value or a intense statement. Do we run towards pain or do we run away from run away from it? I mean, that it's pretty binary Yeah. Uh, with anything. Uh, do we run towards anxiety um, and, and try and fix it or do we, do we move away? And I think what I loved about that example that you just gave is, is there's an acknowledgement in yourself of how you're feeling. Now, when, when that already gives you some advantage because you can actually frame that up in a conversation and say, I am feeling this way, I am feeling defensive or I am feeling afraid, that already settles the conversation. I think the difficulty, and this mm -hmm. comes back to really at the start of our conversation to Tim's point, what happens when we – when we lack awareness around it. And often during the day, we just do. I mean, when we're busy, when there's adrenaline, when we're outcome focused, 
we are lacking awareness. And I, I think just the fact that you know that, um, that, that feeling is, is massive. And then there's the choice, do you choose to engage or withdraw? Yes, there's the acknowledgement and the awareness. And then, as you say, is the what is the purpose here? Is our purpose to mm. avoid pain, to recognize it and go, we should avoid it, or to say, okay, that's a necessary and unfortunate part of the need to have a conversation. And, you know, you quoted Jonathan Haidt before, but he wrote this book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And, and, he, and he looked at how, uh, you know, we are anti-fragile. Human beings are anti-fragile. You look at, you go to the gym, your muscles grow when they're worked, when they're pushed. And the idea that things that trigger us emotionally are inherently going to make us weaker rather than stronger is, is just fundamentally wrong as a psychological fact. I mean, obviously there are things that are so triggering, so painful that they do make us weaker, but there is a window of tolerance there, which we can continually push and grow and to his mind, we need to continually push and grow that if we're going to become stronger, tougher, physical and emotional um, creatures. Let's just go back to your example. Your fear in that conversation may be not true. The conversation may turn out not as bad as you think sure. it will be. And so, Probably likely. Correct. Probably likely. And so anxiety is not the truth. Just because we feel something, it doesn't mean that it is true. You can accept. Yeah. You can accept the feeling, and and not judge it. That's a that's a completely different space to be in, which is probably a good space. But your feelings are not true. Um, they are just feelings. Now they may be true to you, but it doesn't mean that that reality will happen. We know, for example, that anxiety is about negative forecasting, and when you want to reduce somebody's anxiety, it's to stop the forecast that bad things will necessarily happen, which may not be true. Tim? Yeah, I think that's really a good point. I'm just, my brain's just constantly saying one has to acknowledge that this is not an equal playing field. You know, the possibility of being triggered when you're person A and person B are not equivalent. But what I think is true, to come back to your example, one of your choices in that situation, Emil, if you're a not very empowered person, is to use it to use your withdrawal from that conversation as a, a power grab. So you can say, um, I feel, God, I hate these conversations. I always feel like I'm meant to, you know, represent the tribe and, you know, all this. Or you can say, I hate these conversations because I always feel like people don't really understand or, or whatever. Or you can say, oh, you're talking to me about Israel because I'm a Jew, are you? Well, fuck you and walk out. And that's not, that's a grab. That might be genuinely how you feel. But if you live in a culture where that behaviour is rewarded, if, if we live in a culture where we, we, we grow a tribe where outraged, defiant protection against triggering is currency, then we will start doing it more yep. and it will harm yep. the debate and it will harm our own strength. How dare you say I should go to the gym? I am proud of my body as it is. You are implying, you are shaming me. It's like, well, uh, you know, you, you might feel some of those things, but if that gives you power and credibility to say that, then you might be denying yourself a perfectly nice visit to the gym. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, sometimes when I look at the validity of a viewpoint or an argument, I think, well, what's the alternative? And I think as painful as some of these discussions are, particularly for people who are, are disempowered in the community, 
the question is, what's the alternative? And I think, you know, if you frame it in that sense, you go, well, the, the alternative is worse than the problem, you know, uh, right. because the alternative is that you can't have conversations and you, you can't have difficult conversations. And we need to be able to, because we live in a society and by definition, we're going to have people with very different views and we're going to have people who are triggered and who are disempowered and who do find conversations difficult. We'll, uh, we're going to come back to this in a second when we look at the limits of principle of charity. But before we get there, I just want to ask a final question to you, Tim. You know, we, we've talked about how how hard it is to adhere to the principle of charity, how much we have to fight against. And to do that, we need culture. How do we encourage a culture that values listening, curiosity, good faith, trust, intellectual humility? You know, what can we do uh, practically to encourage that? aside from you joining this podcast? This is a tiny drop in, in an ocean. It's just an education project. I, I Really, all these things, te- teaching a way in which one sh- might choose to engage or argue or learn or debate or, you know, that this idea that curiosity is a salve and that changing your opinion is a buzz mm. and that neuropsychological humility is a should be trendy and cool. The, this is you're, you're selling an idea which I think is a fantastic and important idea, but it's it, it is just how do you how do you spread the word of any you know just like we try and spread the word that you know Afghan women are going to be horribly mistreated, we we're trying to spread information and unfortunately it's not very sexy. I listen to your podcast and I love it. And I listen to other podcasts where people are really polemical and a bit of me wants to go over there yeah. and just mm. like really get into that. There's not a lot of righteous that, anger in principle of charity, is no, there? You want to hear someone just slam. <laughs> I don't like conflict, but someone without anyone else in the room just slamming an idea. Obviously it's entertaining. Conflict is entertaining. So what we're what we're selling is a tough sell. It's a sort of it's a it's humility. We're trying to sell intellectual humility. But here, here's something I do want to say about that. More people are into it. This little kink of ours mm. is, is a big, big underground, like <laughs> the quiet majority. I think most people are into this, but it's just very hard to hear them. Lloyd, what happens if the aim of, of a conversation is purely to advocate for political social change, to really be an activist. And if you feel like you've heard the other arguments, you've considered, you're 100% sure of your view, and you really just want to smash down the door and change society, is principle of charity helpful in this scenario? I think you have to come back to what game you're playing. So, you know, in, in game theory, for example, there's two primary games. One is a competitive game, so which is going to be zero sum Somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose, and sometimes that is the only game in town if, if that's what your opponent chooses to play. The other is a cooperative game, which is what we're talking about now. But if the game is highly competitive and if you have an authoritarian regime or somebody who's not prepared to listen and is locking up people or committing human rights abuses, the principle of charity for me is just not workable. I mean, there's, it's not going to work in every situation. I'm not sure it's going to work in a negotiation with the Taliban. I mean, y- you can seek to understand their point of view, and maybe that helps a little, but it, at the end of the day, 
what is your chosen strategy? Is it going to be dialogue or do you have to do something else? Yeah, yeah. Mm. But I'm reminded of your your point about Mandela, who was working in a highly competitive environment trying to bring down a regime, and he still managed to apply principle of charity. Well, well, Mandela initially didn't apply the principle of charity. I mean, he tried to. He got, uh, because uh, black people were not only discriminated against but were you know, significantly oppressed, uh, when dialogue did not work, he chose, to, he chose the armed struggle. Yeah, yeah. no, that's a good. Um, and for that, he, he, he was imprisoned. When the conditions allowed, uh, he, he did apply it, and I think he applied it in a very personal way. I don't think it was just political. So I, I think in a similar way to you know, another South African icon, um, Bishop Tutu, Archbishop Tutu, he applies, you know, the principle of charity not just in a social sense, but if you if you spend time with him, you can really feel that he he understood and was empathic to even the ultra right in Amazing. South Africa. That there was something quite saintly about him. Um, that, for example, I I I just never ever you know could apply to my own. To my own experience of 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 yep, oppressions. Yep, great. Well, t- Tim, to, you know, to, to Lloyd's point, there are there times when painting the straw version, not the steel version, the straw version of the other side is a better strategy. So, I mean, look, we know that when you do that, it's more easy to trick the audience into thinking that you've won. It's a sort of hollow performative trick. I mean, there are also times when you might want to frame a, discru- a discussion in a way that prohibits and, and basically closes down options, closes, like, you, if you say if any discussion of immigration is inherently racist, you are not applying the principle of charity, but you're taking control of a paradigm and trying to foreclose options. Are they legitimate techniques or are they sort of wrong, wrong, uh, moving to the wrong end? Well, I think your example about the immigration conversation is a good one because it's surely absurd to say any discussion of immigration is inherently racist. And and so it's a good example of one where you might feel morally principled to say that, but, you, well, unless you just think the world should have no borders, which you might think, but that's a different discussion. But I, I think the sort of broader conversation that Lloyd is bringing up is that there is a time to go to war. Yeah. It should be very, very, very rare that you go to war. And once you've decided you go to war, once you've decided there is no further diplomacy, that we are going to pick up guns or, you know, just words or whatever our weapon is. Tweets. And that we're no longer going to try and tweet. So we're no longer going to try and reach across the divide. We are at war and we're going to use violence. Then at that point, you must use all your powers of rhetoric and persuasion to dehumanise the other side. You need to get all your soldiers in front of you and say, those people, those krauts, they're evil. This is what they do. And, you know, and they'll, they'll, they're on their side, they'll go, these Jews, and they'll, they'll pass around cartoons and, you know. And so you must dehumanise the other side if you're going to go to war. Now, as I described that, it was surely every listener is in there going, well, that, that should be very, 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 very last resort. And yet again, I want to acknowledge that the energy required to do diplomacy is more, it's is easier when you have more privilege and more power. But, you know, you said earlier, what's the alternative to the tr- principle of charity? The alternative to the principle of charity is war. And I actually mean that literally. 
The end point of ever-increasing tribalization down moral grounds is literal war. Mm. It has to be. Mm. It has to be. So I, I think, yes, there are times to go to war when the other side is evil, but it can't be very common. Well, I think also to decide whether to go to war or not, you need to apply the principle of charity first. You need to actually seek well, to understand to first. All the information. You need to understand mm. from their point of view. You need to present the most generous version of their argument. If at that point it's still you still feel justified, then that's a very different decision to deciding to go to war when you haven't tried to understand what they are intending in the best possible light. That's right. When you're only going to war because you've pre-dehumanized yeah, them pre by, not, yeah. by not ever trying. I mean, the principle of charity, you know doesn't allow for your brain to just fall out of you. I mean, you still have to have a brain. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get things very, very wrong about your opponent. Yeah, and we are, I mean, just to state the obvious, the principle of charity does not advocate, you know, assuming that all opinions are equally valid and it doesn't advocate no. coming to mm. one truth and one conclusion. I mean, that is not what it's about. Yeah, it's, it's actually, funny. you know, about a way of approaching conversations. Tim, another example of the limits of principle of charity or challenge to principle of charity, you know, you might call the the sort of woke argument, which is, you know, is being able to discuss things rationally to put aside our emotional triggers and to aim for reasonableness and that sort of, you know, enlightenment, rational ideal, really just a form of, of, of white privilege. I mean, even you know, there's been arguments that that sort of rational ideal is a form of white supremacy speech, you know, privilege of a certain class of people, a way of marginalizing voices who may not have the luxury and the history and culture of being able to have this sort of discussion. Now, we've touched on this before, but do you think it's a valid um, counterpoint or, or push against the principle of charity? I think it's a really understandable one. Yeah. I can sit in that position let me skip to my conclusion briefly. I think it's horrendously racist, but let me start from mm. a less inflammatory mm. statement. I can sit in a place where I understand that listening to a bunch of middle-aged white guys, all of whom have tertiary degrees and a bit of philosophy and psychology, <laughs> you know, training, there's no doubt that that would feel like you are being kicked out of the room and and people like us are saying, well, you can't have you can't engage unless you know how to, uh, you know, check your confirmation bias and have neuropsychological humility and, you know, don't create straw men and you, you've raised your voice, settle down, you know, like yes. this uh, tone policing that goes on with people like us. You're too emotional. Is, I, it's so, it must be infuriating and it must be acknowledged. However, the idea because of the patriarchy, because of colonialism, because of guns, germs and steel, because of Euro-industrial revolution, because of infinite factors, there's no doubt that over the last couple of hundred years a lot of ideas and inventions will have been attributed to or created by people with white skin and penises, right? Because 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 of the circumstances, it's the fact of power, well. you know. In, that's right, and we can we can analyze how bad it is that that's the case, which obviously it is. Inequality and you know Eurocentrism and colonialism, we all understand now, has huge problems. But that doesn't mean we should throw the philosophical baby out with the equality bathwater, right? So 
you know, penicillin or the principle of charity or synthesize psilocybin or tampons or, you know, it doesn't matter who invented these things. We can assess whether they're good or bad, right? And I would put in a category of good ideas are the indu- uh, the the ideas that we call enlightenment ideals mm. of of rationalism of reason right the enlightenment of tolerance the rise of the era of reason and tolerance and and these ideas didn't come from the French in 1780 they were accumulated they're in the Bible they're in the Greeks they're in Egypt these ideas were accumulated by people of all genders sexes colors and persuasions over time and they went through a mimetic evolution you know they became ideas that survived and they became the ideas from which classic liberalism flourished right and to say that these ideas of reason and enlightenment no you know not for black people is horrendous to me hmm. and I, I and if it's a black patronizing person, as well i mean it can be I seen as even, patronizing yeah. I find it difficult to even talk about because I understand if a person of colour says that, I can't just discard their experience. But if I was a different person of colour who really loves his Hume, I'd be furious. Hmm. Hmm. How dare you say the colour of my skin prohibits me from engaging in the ideas of the Enlightenment and being a good diplomat? Are you saying that because of the colour of my skin I should just be angry and passionate hmm. and I'm not allowed in the room of 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 enlightenment, of of reason, discussion, of philosophy and psychology and psycho-neurological humility, you know, like it's crazy, that stuff. I mean, to push further into awkward territory, Tim, is there a positive of being privileged and not being triggered and having the luxury of being able to have reasonable and open conversations? There is... There's an argument that being an outsider or being less drawn in to the dangers of these conversations can give us a a vantage point to maybe get to the truth more easily. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm way too aware of the possibility that my intention in these conversations could be deliberately or accidentally misconstrued to speak too much to this. But I I think I can say that the idea we talk about this privilege idea, it's become this absurd situation where people think privilege is something you need to excoriate yourself for, that you need to be ashamed of. That That's a misconstrual of the importance of the idea of privilege. Privilege is something that you should be very wary of and I am hyper wary of it because I don't believe in free will so I know that every single thing about me is luck. Being aware of privilege allows you to think about how best to use it. You shouldn't bury it and shame yourself for it. You should utilise it for what you see to be moral good. One privilege is the privilege of having education. It's perhaps the greatest privilege. This sort of tacit idea I hear from some sort of binary, you know, political radical people that you should not just check your privilege and acknowledge it but kind of hide it and punish yourself for it is absurd. If you have the privilege of education, regardless of where you come from, your obligation is to try and apply it in a way that you think is moral. And and, and there's an argument that, you know, we want more privilege. We just want to democratise it, don't we? We want everybody to be privileged, to everyone to have the privileges rather than to feel that privilege is a a sort of shame as as much as it is as well. Of course. 
Okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna shift gears and and make this a little bit more personal. We've spoken quite a bit about the principle of charity from a conceptual principle point of view, if you if if you will. I'd like to make this a little bit more personal and um, talk about the principle of charity from a experiential point of view in, with respect to both of you. But before doing so, uh, bearing in mind, Emil, I am going to ask you some personal questions. Let me let me give an introduction to Emil. Emil is the founder and, and managing director, or joint managing director of Seesaw Films. Seesaw is a global film and television production company. It has won so many awards, uh, Academy Awards, Emmy Awards, Golden Globes. You may have seen uh, some of Seesaw's productions, uh, The King's Speech, Lion, Top of the Lake. But importantly, with respect to to, to other parts of Emil, uh, Emil is a director of the Ethics Center, he is uh, on the board of the Animal Protection Institute Voiceless. He's a former director of the Sydney Writers' Festival. Uh, he holds a law degree. He has a master's degree in English literature. Um, importantly, as, as you would have discovered, um, and, and, I, and I know from family dinners, he's obsessively curious about ideas, sometimes a little too so, so can lighten up a bit, but then the same critique has been made of me. Tim, I'm going to come to a point that you made earlier about yourself, a lot of your career is based on being polemical. Some of your, some of your work is quite angry. I think of the Pell song, uh, the Cardinal Pell song, stuff about Scott Morrison. How do you incorporate gentleness or charity into your work when, in fact, your, some of your career is, is based on being angry? Yeah, I could be really long and boring about this. I mean, I, I think um, there's hypocrisy in it. One tries to be a certain way and isn't always and one develops into beliefs and leaves some things behind. So uh, I have comedy in my past that was a bit cruel when I was sort of had no career and I kind of found that being edgy got me an audience. On the other side, I've done work that, that I look through a utilitarian lens at, so mm. uh, the greatest good for the greatest number. So my in, in terms of the work where I've personally attacked people, there's virtually none. I yeah. attack ideas and sometimes I personify those ideas in a straw person like in Storm. Storm mm. isn't a person. She's an amalgamation of yeah. a million ideas and it's deliberately she takes, she represents the far the furthest away point of what I'm arguing about deliberately, it's called a, I think they call it a Socratic dialogue, right? You create a right. Socrates yeah. or maybe, yeah, Socrates used to have a character that he would argue against, that he would imbue with like a straw man with all the ideas he disagrees with, agreed with just so he could make him look like a fool in his dialogues. Mm. But it was mm. generated from nothing. The Pell song, so, so this is about when you decide to go to war. So the privilege yeah. that a person like Cardinal Pell and the institution that, of which he is a leader has been so great for so long and one of the greatest privileges is they are protected from normal everyday language. For example, if a tennis coach was accused of shuffling kids around to different tennis camps that he owns or runs when he knows that there was a there's pedophiles in all these places we would use incredibly strong language the papers would be full of evil pedo scum blah blah 
but the church is protected from that because he wears a fancy hat. And I made a conscious and incredibly carefully researched decision to raise money for abuse survivors to go and see him testify because he mm. chucked a sickie, right? And no one was using normal everyday tennis coach language and I did and it was shocking because it, was, it wasn't even very strong. But, mm. you know, I also felt confident because I spent 15 years hating that Pell's, uh, Pell's homophobic rhetoric and his sexist rhetoric and, and I also am not religious so I don't, I don't give him any credence whatsoever for his position of power because I don't think God exists so I think it's all a, a sort of – no, no, I'll take that back. I, there's a lot of good stuff about church structure. But um, so, so that's an exception. Then there's a bit of hassling sco- ScoMo, which was very gentle and was a song written by Briggs that I wrote a chorus for. But um, I – you would stri- – and the other exception is Donald Trump and I am – I shouldn't have been one of the billions of people on Twitter saying just – I was just like, I hate this man so much. I just have to say it in the public square. I wouldn't do that now. That was that was useless, utterly useless to do that hmm. stuff. Apart from that, you hmm. could probably go through everything I've ever created and you won't find me being personally insulting to people even when they were calling me lazy, dull-bludging, stoner, faggot scum hmm. on the internet. You won't find me. Yeah, Tim, as you speak, I'm struck by how personally aware you are of yourself where does this where does this come from i guess uh, my genes I, I have a very measured father my privilege as in i have felt very very angry in my life but it tends to be on behalf of others i have a my my kids have both been tested recently cognitively cuz one of them's autistic and the other one's a bit interesting neurologically as well and um uh they both have this sort of over um, blown sense of justice, their justice module in their brain. And so I think mm. I, that, that might come a bit down my line. Um, but I'm also a needy, pathetic, self-righteous, fucking pathetic. I just want, I, I really, really want to be, I feel very motivated to not just be good and that causes me a lot of distress trying to figure out what that means, but to be seen as good, and that's the less gener- generous right. bit of it. Yeah. And so yeah. I yeah. work on it. I mean, okay. I, I work on trying to be good and I work on trying to be seen good. <laughs> Emil, I'm going to move over to you. Yeah. What triggers you to get morally righteous, judgmental before you listen? And you can talk about me as well, by the way, <laughs> if you want to. I'm sure I trigger you. <laughs> Well, I, I'd say two things. First of all, I think I really enjoy arguing and I like getting heated up, but I find I have a style where I I, I, I seem to be more argumentative than I actually am. I'm, I'm more just enjoying, I, I like to have someone I'm discussing with who's equally passionate and I like tossing ideas around and, and, and I like changing my mind. And so my style can seem a bit argumentative and so I, I, I can get... Um, wound up when I'm talking with people who have that style and it can seem like, you know, I've gotten really um, heated and emotional, but actually inside I'm just having a good time and people can misconstrue that. What triggers me now idea-wise, and I am I am a bit ashamed of this because I don't want it to be so, but I know where it comes from, is I find identity politics very triggering for me. And as much as I, I really, and in some cases, and with some people, I argue 
hugely in favour of the importance of a whole range of um, things that come out of identity politics. I just was not trained that way at university. I was trained by by spending years doing sort of cultural theory and postmodern theory to think that identity is everything that's wrong. Identity is what white supremacy rests on. Identity is power and that we need to disrupt anything which points to the essential nature of identity, whether it's culture, tribes, groups. And so, you know, I'm watching a show called The Chair on uh, on Netflix at the moment, a brilliant show, But and my wife's loving it. But just the world of identity politics makes me feel just really um, stressed. I just feel stressed about it as much as my head takes over and goes, it's a, it's a perfectly reasonable um, debate and conversation to have. Tim, I can see you want to say something here. Oh, no. I mean, I, I think people of uh, cl- classically liberal, enlightenment-educated people of all colours and creeds, I, I should, shouldn't have to say that, but I do because... Of our age group. Of I our think age group. Important well, of, of, of people probably above the age of 30 all the way to the dead people all the way back 300 years have a genuine anxiety that uh, we're going in, that this is a misstep. And, and so that's a whole other podcast. But, yes, I, I'm, I'm the same. I, I have genuine anxiety that it's a misstep, but I still I don't have a problem applying the principle of charity because there's a lot to hear. And there are a lot of great ideas within it and there's a lot to a lot of great mm. challenges mm. to things that we yeah. assume to be true. Mm. And I can solve my anxiety by listening more, not less. My concern, mm. which is real and abiding, uh, ongoing, that, um, you know, more tribalizing is not a great idea and we should go back to, you know, trying to ignore each other's differences as much as we can whilst acknowledging the mm. differentials in privilege. Um, I, there's just, I can, I can offset my anxiety by going deeper into the other side. And that, mm. that, there's a, mm. that's the lesson. You yeah. know? Now I have to get to this question that I want to ask both of you. Um, my wife uh, has been in the arts for a long time uh, as both an actress. She now writes musicals and I want to ask both of you this question. I sometimes find, and maybe I am stereotyping here, but I sometimes find people in the arts who tend to be quite left-leaning, just as social scientists tend to be quite left-leaning, very judgmental about people when they don't dress well or haven't read the right book and, and they're not so fancy. What's what's going on here? I, I think it's a really interesting question and I think you might be suffering from a bit of confirmation bias. You might notice it in them uh, more. You might have at some point early on noticed that and now you yeah, you yeah. gather that data. And Now I'm seeing it all everywhere. Yeah, now you're mm. seeing it everywhere. But I would say that increasingly one's politics are part of one's brand and People ostensibly, you know, I can't stand right-wing people saying, you know, because people make assumptions about my politics because I understand climate science and have long hair, people throwing out lefty snowflake and ABC this and that in Australia, it's just I find it like, oh, geez, we're, we're not 12. You just have to do better than that. However, I do 
understand how unattractive the left can be from the outside because that champagne lefty accusation doesn't come from nowhere. It is there. There is a lot of social justice branding going on, and so a correlate that you've observed between people who kind of are quite like you have to dress like this and eat like this and be loudly Black Lives Matter square posting, you know, loudly vegan, whatever. It is very human. One's tribe and one's brand are increasingly intermeshed, I think, and maybe that's what you're observing. They're kind of just you can be very social justice oriented without being a particularly nice person. Mm. I guess. Mm. Just mm. like you can yeah, be a very nice gun toting, you know, right wing Christian. That's a fascinating mm. point. Emil, what's 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 your view? I think it brings up a really interesting point, Lloyd, which is that I think a number of years ago, the artistic impulse, people with artistic uh, sensibilities, the artistic force was one of um, expansiveness, of breaking down boundaries, of not following the rules. And it has become, and that's one thing which has shifted in the left, that the left and artists, are, you know, often in this case as well, are grabbing onto purity, are holding onto purity as something of value, whereas before it was that anarchic spirit, which is something that they identified with. And I think that has really been a shift. And, you know, when, Tim, you talk about, you know, you're, you're not, you're, you know, maybe never practice exactly what you, you know, you think in your head and you don't live up. I mean, I think there's a sense that we, we can have fun. We can not be consistent. We can not be pure. Uh, we don't need to be pure. Maybe social media is pointing out our contradictions, but what's so bad about contradictions? What's so bad about being inconsistent? I mean, I'm not saying that entirely seriously, mm. but I think there is a beautiful force of anarchy and disruption which links to lateral thinking, it links to creativity, it links to coming up with new ideas, and that has been the force of the arts. And if the arts moves too much to a force of, I have worked out ahead of time exactly what I need to think, and so I'm now writing a book or a play or a musical to service that particular ideal, things get a bit boring. And I think uh, we might feel that we are more worthy for it, but less people are going to watch the stuff because humans are messy. Humans are 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 inconsistent, and we want yeah. to see that on our screens. Yeah. No, I think that's and I think that's good pushback to me in with respect to that observation. I think it, it really highlights that this came to a point that Tim was making earlier, very early in this conversation. Is I need to be in this case more charitable to imperfection. Yeah. You, you can't apply the principle of charity if you don't understand percentage improvement. If you just think people need to be perfect and great and never have done things wrong and never have to be angry or have, have made mistakes, uh, that, that is where we're getting with this, you know, what I think is the cancel culture that, that, uh, that we've alluded to. On that note, Tim, you, when Emil was talking about privilege, what I was also hearing was, I am a little afraid to touch on this. It could get misinterpreted. Bearing in mind that the principle of charity attempts to seek the truth, how much are you holding back in yourself in conversations, particularly because you're such a public figure, because you are afraid uh, of the backlash or being cancelled? 
I think I'm holding back in helpful and unhelpful ways, as in helpful to me and society, as in people like me. Uh, and and look, I've been, you know, I did an interview with Stan Grant recently, which he started with, you know, you grew up rich. And I didn't want to say, well, but, you know, it's, you know, I grew up with, you know, camping holidays only and secondhand cars and I just went to a good school. And, you know, when I left school, no one's ever, my parents gave me $500 to my first car and that's the last dollar I ever got given. And I never got a scholarship. I never took a grant. I never got the doll. I've, I literally taught myself how to play piano. I've never had a lesson in acting, composing, lyric writing, comedy. It like, you know, Hmm. I, I, I think I should be allowed to claim some level of self-actualization, even though I believe um, it's all a causal chain from the Big Bang. But anyway, um, I, so so I, I, I sort of resent being put in a box where I'm so sort of privileged that uh, anything I say is, um, you know, sort of moot. But that said, I think it's good that people like me pause before they pontificate. And I, mm. you listen to this podcast, you, you might laugh out loud, but I do pause a lot. And I do think the capital P privilege idea has a positive effect in that way. It makes me stop and think about really whether my voice is the right voice right now. Mm. On the other end of the scale, I, I don't say a lot of things that I think are probably perfectly reasonable and considered ideas because I am scared of having what I say taken out of context and uh, someone will attempt to shame, publicly shame me. And I don't like the uh, phrase cancel culture because everyone says, well, no one's cancelled. Look, you've still got a job. And it's like, oh, let's talk about public shaming as a mechanism for change mm. and what the slippery slope of that is. So I I will in time, and I talk about it on stage because people will have their phones off and they're just listening and I can keep context around it in the live situation but when I'm being recorded I'm definitely more cautious in some helpful and some unhelpful ways because of a fear that someone not applying charitable intent deliberately using what I say to feather a a tribal point um, will try and shame me and I suspect I'm a little oversensitive about that. I I think people underestimate the potential negative effects of shaming being a a dominant mechanism of change and I think they underestimate the effect of what it feels like to be on the end of it. People are like, oh, it was Mm. just a few comments and it's like, nah, until you've had thousands of people abusing you online and felt that magnet, that inability to look away, it feels incredibly emotionally distressing and we do it to yeah. each other very very casually and so yes i'm i'm a little i'm cautious because yeah. i don't believe most people will have charitable i believe there are a scary percentage of people who will not have a charitable interpretation of my intent when mm-hmm. i talk about anything slightly on the edge of content yeah. as, as you were speaking i could just feel my own fear yeah <laughs> increasing yeah. um We've probably agreed that there will be people that we should not apply the principle of charity to. At some point, we need to judge them. They may be incredibly prejudicial. They demonstrate consistency in their prejudice. They're quite hurtful sometimes in their prejudice. What happens when those people are family members? How, why are we more charitable to the family than to others? 
I guess a, re- a really interesting question is whether we should treat everybody like family. You know, think of that as a you know as a thought experiment mm. that we can hold interesting contradictory views about people in our family where we love them but we hate their ideas. It's interesting to think about what that would be like if we held it with our workmates and we go, we love them, but they hold some ideas we don't like with people in our neighborhood, with people in our city, with people in the country, people internationally. Um, Obviously, the further removed people get, the less trust there is, um, the less we know them as human beings. So we just have the, the ideas that we dislike. But, you know, truly great people, and you talked about uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, do seem able to be able to recognise the humanity in people and hold that humanity at the same time as disagreeing with their views. And we know that when people live in different neighbourhoods and there have been studies which show in America, as I understand it, that people with different views are much more polarised geographically, that it becomes harder to feel that sense of family with uh, uh, people who have different views. And so you do, you stop being used to that. You, that muscle that we have developed in our family, we, we, we lose the power of that to approach um, all human beings like that. Mm. And I guess I would hope that yeah. we can exercise that muscle more and more strongly because it's a beautiful muscle to have to go, mm. you know what, I love you, but I really hate that idea of mm. yours and I'm happy to have dinner with you. Great idea. Tim, over to you. I think the first thing I said on this podcast is that the principle of charity is basically an extension of do unto others as you would have done unto you and, you know, connected to the more Christian stuff, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I mean, it seems so obvious that it is fridge magnet level trite, but whenever we engage with one another in public discourse, on the internet, in real life, we should say to ourselves, how would I treat this person if they were my brother? And we should ask ourselves, if someone I love was treated like I am treating this person, would I be okay with it? If your desire to punish someone, to shame them or to withhold from them any possibility of forgiveness for something they've said or done or an idea that you think is abhorrent, if you applied that across the board and it was applied to you, would the world be a better place? These little Mm. hypothetical questions and exactly as Emil posed it, these should come down in front of our face like a lens, like a filter every time we engage. Now sometimes we will err. Sometimes we will be too angry and too emotional to, to apply to others the dignity and humanity that we want applied to ourselves. And you will have reasons for that. But every single time we fail, it's a failure. Mm-hmm. We were wrong to fail every time. And that's what I say to myself. Yeah. There were good reasons why I was so angry. This and that and that and my past and, you know, that triggered me. But, but that doesn't mean you let yourself off. That doesn't mean you go, well, they deserved it. You were wrong. You were wrong to not offer them the humanity you would expect back. And we have to hold ourselves to account in that regard, surely. Great. I think on that note, we're going to close it. 
Tim, thank you so much uh, for, for giving us your time. More importantly, thank you for giving us the name of this podcast and also for being a great supporter. Thank you, Emil. Thank you, Tim. Uh, if you haven't seen, by the way, uh, Tim's uh, Storm video, animation video, it is just great because it really does focus on, on a lot of what we're talking about today. Thanks. You guys are great. Keep doing your podcast. That was great. Appreciate it. Take care, everybody. Cheers. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. You can also find Principle of Charity on social media, where we hope you'll join the discussion. See you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.